to the Kicking and Screaming podcast. I'm your co-host, Vanessa Gritton. With me is your other co-host. Hi, I'm Elijah Taylor. Sometimes I punch. (laughs) And uh, we have our first ever guest. And we're definitely going to have tech issues at this point because I already can hear my own voice at a one second delay. And I think that's a form of riot control. Uh, But joining us today, you can find him at the Small Beans Network and... One of my favorite people in the universe, that's the scream of a child in the background, Michael Swaim. Hello. Hello, Vanessa <laughs> and Elijah. I feel like my background noise. Oh, I just have a motorcycle going by. I, yeah. It needs to be more weird. You had a child screaming. That was great. That was it, thrilling. It was we, thrilling. We cannot confirm that the child was kicking and screaming, but we're yeah. halfway there at least. I was going to say, you need a different thing screaming at the beginning yeah. of every podcast. Now it's the expected bit. And now we're just going to become like very weird crime people that make sure there is always a scream at the beginning of the podcast. And I'm imagining a series of escalating stakes where, you know, the thing that's screaming and how the scream is being induced gets more and more intense each time. But it's an audio medium. Yeah. So they, like, there's no reason for us to escalate these stakes but we're going to anyways (laughs) yeah by episode 100 it's like a nine minute radio play that is a horror in and of itself and ends with brutal screaming and you forget it's a podcast yeah well thank you so much for being here today as our first guest ever i've been also just wanting to like do this podcast specifically with you because i think you're really good at looking at the way a machine works and then trying to break it (laughs) yeah that's right that's why they won't let me on the bus anymore exactly (laughs) And in this case, uh, the premise of the podcast, if you're a first-time listener, is Elijah and I create double features of a horror and martial arts movie. I need to say martial arts because I I drove home kung fu too much, and this is the first non-kung fu movie, so that's on me. I was immediately going to, um, actually, you. (laughs) It is not a kung fu movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I I realized I... I had intended from the beginning, like, oh, yeah, there's going to be, you know, movies where people do karate or uh, judo or, you know, a Chambara samurai film, whatever. But I did not think to correct our usage of kung fu because I so often colloquially make that mistake that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a kung fu movie. No one's doing kung fu in this. And then by episode three, we fucked ourselves. Yeah, we've already destroyed the premise of the podcast. <laughs> by the way, though, when the title clicked for me, yeah, mm, chef's kiss. Kicking oh, and screaming. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. A karate and a horror. Perfect. Yeah. We got we got the title and worked backwards. So as is most ideas in Hollywood. I wanted to have you specifically pick the first movie and you picked a horror movie. And not only did you pick a horror movie, you picked maybe the hardest thing we can try and find a pairing with. Yeah, did I? Because that's the that's one reason I love it is a lot of people will argue with me about whether it even is a horror movie. I was gonna say that's one of the first things I feel like we need to address. And I I think like yes inarguably it's horror but i i definitely hear that conversation a lot i actually was talking to a friend of mine uh just kind of talking through it like man i have to find a, a martial arts movie to pair with a racer head and uh they they immediately said that's not a horror movie like they immediately uh shot it down which which i disagree with but did they unpack the logic at all anyone i think would grant it's a scary movie or like i understand it's trying to be scary isn't that all that's required or no? Because I'm actually doing a piece for where I work my day job now at IGN of, uh, you know, it's October time. So all the features are like scare- around scary stuff. And uh, I'm having, man, horror fans and I love horror, but I don't get into the intense arguments about the minutia of which genre is which genre. Like that's not body horror, that's Euro horror, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I just can't. I keep accidentally including stuff in my features list that are people are like, uh, that's not horror. That's true crime. And I'm like, yeah, but it's scary and a bunch of people die in it. And afterwards, I couldn't sleep that night. Isn't that horror? <laughs> I was horrified. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, Elijah and I, having both written for pub- horror publications, that's the conversation that constantly comes up, like trying to figure out what it is or isn't. But I feel like really anything can be horror. Like, I consider Knocked Up to be a horror movie because that's like my nightmare situation. I almost <laughs> I almost requested Synecdoche, New York to be really pretentious. That's so good. He considers it a horror movie. (laughs) I love a horror pipe wrench where we not only like have a horror movie picked that's really difficult, but then we have to debate in it of itself. It is a scary movie. Is it horror? In my opinion, yes, because it like follows all of the beats, the music cues and like the visual iconography of what a scary movie is. Yeah, no, I... I agree. I should also establish, though, I am, like, if, if this is a spectrum of, of how uh, pretentious or, like, uh, protective or elitist someone is about whether or not something is horror, I am so far on the side of the spectrum that I'm constantly arguing uh, that everything is a horror film. I'm like, no, no, that's technically a horror movie. Yeah. I like, And this this genuinely started as a bit with a, with a Fangoria editor that I worked with a while back where uh, we were discussing a film and a a third Fangoria person was like, that's not even a horror movie. And they just confidently said, all movies are horror movies and ended the conversation. And I thought it was hilarious, but then I started Mm -hmm. like working in my head, just like picking movies and being like, can I argue that this is a horror movie? And then I got weirdly like fixated on this bit to the point that it's no longer a bit. And I'm just like, yeah, no, most movies are horror movies. And so I've like- Uh, Avengers Endgame is Commedia dell'arte. Don't ask me any (laughs) follow-up questions. No, I, I won't be taking questions. Uh, no, but I've like made lists of like horror recommendations uh, for people, and we'll have something like a like Barton Fink, the Coen Brothers film, which I think is absolutely a horror film. And they're like, "No, man, I wanted horror movies, like you know, like there's a ghost yeah. or whatever." And I'm like, well, no, Barton Fink is a horror movie." The one that got me in trouble is, do you know Festin Celebration? No, I don't. I don't think I do. Uh, it's a Dogma '93 film, which mm. means shot with like no technology and it doesn't depict violence but i mean it implies violence very i've seen very a much. lot of horrific dogma 93 movies too. yeah exactly and it is i included it on this list i'm making of horror films initially because it's one of the most upsetting experiences i've ever had in a film and then people had to point out but it's just about a family in rooms talking, saying mean stuff to each other. It's a drama, dude. It's not a horror movie. And I'm like, but it's so upsetting. And they're like, that doesn't make it. It's got to have, a, you know, spook em ups. It's got to have like a ghost, something. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I would argue that even if you are kind of like splitting hairs, Eraserhead is, is still a, a pretty easy one. <laughs> and that's what our movie is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, did well, we I not don't say know. it earlier? Did we not say the pick earlier? No. I spoiled it. My bad. No, you said it. You said it once. Okay. I think okay. in passing. I've been spoiling it this whole time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, what's the format? Is it are there is there segmentation to the kicking and screaming? Or so first are we segment just talking Eraserhead? It's pretty loose the first segment is yeah. we're just talking eraser head and why you picked okay. it it's basically awesome. whichever movie was picked first we talk about yeah. first 
Well, I wanted to pick a movie that I genuinely is one of my favorite movies. And Eraserhead is. I love various Lynch things because he's like the exception that proves the rule for me. I'm a structuralist and formalist and I love puzzles that have a solution. <laughs> like I um, what remember seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey because my dad, you know, had a whole like series of important films to show me. Eraserhead was on it. That's how I first saw this. 14 years old, still too young to see Eraserhead, I think. It Way too young. scared the shit out of me. Yeah, but um, uh, but like 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Giant Baby, I was so mad for weeks because I couldn't understand why is the end with a baby in space. And when my dad finally was like, well, it's semi-abstract, son, but here's my theory. He ascended to a new state of being. So it just represents that he's coming back as a baby. He's like the next evolution of. And I'm like, I love this movie. Now this is my favorite movie. And I recently had that experience as an adult with Hereditary, which I hated because I hate being compelled for no reason. Like I hate getting (laughs) jerked around. I was like, this is so compelling, but has no meaning. So I hate it even more that it's compelling. I wish it was trashier. Then. I watched it again and again and again because it was like the horror movie of the minute that all yeah. my friends wanted to watch whenever we got together. Remember getting together? <laughs> and, um, oh, people. Uh, it was, as you unravel it, obviously everything is actually a clue and uh, is totally maps to everything. It's just very dense and complicated. But like, it's the kind of movie where you can freeze frame it and be like, his hand is in that position. And in the book, in this drawing, the hand is in that position. That means this. It mathematically all works out. Now I love it. Now I think it's like <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and uh, the reason I say all this is that uh, podcasts are long. You got to fill the air. No, is that Lynch, Lynch to me, I is the one abstract film artist that I don't need to... Like the mystery box is fine remaining a mystery. I don't know what kind of mad level he's on or what madness he, it is. But when I see a Mulholland Drive, I don't need an essay that is like Mulholland Drive explained. Um, and that's fantastic to me. That's amazing to me. Like I often think of the shot in Twin Peaks where for no reason they say the they're having like a normal dialogue scene in the sheriff's office, but they say the stuffed deer head on the wall needs to be refurbished. So at the beginning of the scene, they take it down and set it sideways on the desk. And it just happens to be staring directly in the lens for the whole scene. And they're just doing mundane dialogue, but it's scary as shit. And it's like Lynch has this incredible genius to create a, uh, truly horrifying imagery that I believe is truly primal. It's just he has an instinct for it and it, and you don't see that often. You, you usually see people saying, well, it's man versus the environment. And in, it's even creepier because man is the environment. Like in, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, humans are the threat or what have you. Uh, Lynch doesn't have that. He just goes like, put that light there and make it black and white and have (laughs) this thing rotating. And you're like, I don't like this. I really don't want to be here. Yeah. Um, And ironically in this watch through of a razor head for the first time in my life, probably the 10th time seeing it, I developed a full theory of a razor head explained this time. Oh my God. (laughs) I I think I I do know what it means. I want to, I want to cut into that, but first I I feel like uh, we, we left this open-ended. Uh, Eraserhead is a horror film. Yes. It's a horror movie. 
it makes me afraid. It taps yeah. into like what Mike's Michael said, like the very primal fears that I have, not even just like uh like thinking about like those questions that I don't want to ask myself, like what kind of parent I will be, but just straight up on the sounds and visual imagery used, right. things that upset me and make me upset. I the entire movie I forgot how much it gets under my skin in a certain kind of way. And uh how much just like the bright sudden flashes of white or the weird mouth sounds make me like push myself into my couch uh and i think it's because it's so earnest um it's it's never really played in that way of like wouldn't this be gross but it's very much from like that natural primal thing of recoil that you have from like daily sounds and things that kind of get under your skin but like held up to a microphone to where i can't escape it yeah and it's you're right like lynch has that thing of uh, the this very confident weirdness that doesn't feel try hard it doesn't feel like i'm setting up a thing to to spook you it just is inherently unnerving uh but yeah i mean eraser head just on a really like uh aesthetic or like kind of basic level it's like it has multiple practical effects creatures it's got some blood and some fluids the soundtrack is basically the texas chainsaw massacre soundtrack where it's just kind of uncomfortable sounds for a lot of it it's a horror film I would argue it's also a slapstick comedy, but definitely a horror film. I find, oh, I want to hear that. And there's a damn question <laughs> spilling forth. Um, but I find that when you remove the jump scare as a staple, people have difficulty determining if it's really a horror film. We've so associated jump scares with horror. There is no jump scare in Eraserhead, as far as I no. can tell. The only uh, thing that can maybe count yeah. as a jump scare, and it's not even so much of a jump scare, but it just uses sudden noise, is when the baby's suddenly sick. Oh, where yeah. he, like, looks away from it, he, like, takes the temperature and then looks away and it makes the sound. And it's yeah, and it's not quite a jump scare, but it's just, like, sudden tension. Yeah. But it yeah, doesn't... But- the pace of the movie is like slow doorway dolly yeah. into something you're thinking about that upsets you. Uh, and I just don't think we see that a lot or, or that tends to confuse people. I wanted to ask Elijah, I forgot to ask in the moment, so I'm taking us back. But what is the crux of the argument that all movies are horror movies? Because I think we've established Eraserhead is. But like, you know, Devil Wears Prada, is that a horror movie? How do you do that trick? Flip something for us. See, I... I'm not familiar enough with Devil Wears Prada. But I can say that it's a horror movie. You can say that it's a horror movie. Okay, Vanessa, go. Take the... Devil Wears Prada is a horror movie. Well, first of all, uh, let me just get this out there. The villain is not Meryl Streep. The villain is 100% the boyfriend. Um, But for me, it's a horror movie when I think about, like... How uh, unfair a lot of like the priorities that are put on women are where it's very much just like you have to be soft, but you have to be hard and you have to like be able to do your job to the like ex- extent of it, but also like how you're expected to be everything for everyone and that there is no good choice because at the end she's like i'm gonna go with the boyfriend who was like pissed off that she was working the entire time in some like some capacity so like whenever i watch the devil wears prada i get sweaty and i think about the fact that eventually i'm gonna have to be asked to choose anyways (laughs) no see i was scary right no and i think that it it, maybe there is a, a baseline level of anxiety that is intrinsically necessary to this to like take this trip with most films but i feel like uh so many films or pieces of art or media can be i you know and sometimes it takes watching them obsessively again and again 
but the argument can be made that there is a, a character who is experiencing this through a, a horrifying lens because a lot of human interactions are kind of horrifying in in the abstract and i think that you can sometimes it takes a, a necessary level of abstraction but i think uh, like we we watched ferris bueller's day off last night and like that one isn't even hard it's a horror movie from cameron's perspective like he is so anxious and afraid and unhappy the whole time and his like moment of catharsis is also kind of horrifying like he has a a low-key mental breakdown in front of his friends <laughs> They're both a little afraid of him in this moment, and Ferris is like, "Hey, man, I can, I can take the blame for destroying this priceless car, if it's better for you." Because they, the tension in that scene almost feels less like Ferris doing something heroic than like, "I don't know what Cameron is about to do next. <laughs> I'm like, right. I need to make sure that we get through this okay." But even like his sort of heroic moment of like, "I'm gonna stand up to my dad," like. It's, I feel like it's almost implied that the father is, like, actively abusive. You know, he calls him by his first name. He never, like, calls him dad. He makes it very clear that, like, the father has never trusted him or cared about him. He cares about the car more than him. He hates his wife. Like, it's such an unhappy home that he lives in. He seemingly has no other friends and is, like, uh, you know, kind of the, the lackey to Ferris, who just sort of, like, does whatever Ferris wants to help him accomplish his schemes. And his the, the best moment in this day that's, like, joyous for everyone else is him destroying his father's most prized possession and being like, fuck it, I don't Fight even Fight me, care. man. Yeah, I'm gonna tell him, maybe he'll beat the shit out of me. Who cares? I don't care about anything anymore. <laughs> like, his, his fun prank where he gets a laugh out of everyone is a fake suicide <laughs> attempt. Like, it's a horrifying film from Cameron's perspective. Donnie Darko is a Ferris Bueller remake, and Ferris is the rabbit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a there's an internet theory for you <laughs> i love it speaking of internet theories i want to go back to your you solved a racer head yeah give me give me the math oh. behind a racer head okay well let me uh, tab over to my notes here where i solved a well, racer head well you're well you're and i'll have the you notes. know I didn't. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to quickly uh, the the thread of you saying Lynch uh, has this really confidently like unnerving kind of primal fear thing. I uh, I was very very much like raised on horror films. Uh, my mother just loved horror, so for like as long as I could remember, I was watching horror movies, and she she made a point of like explaining very early on like none of it's real, it's not scary. Look, we laugh at Freddy Krueger. He's funny. So most horror films were not scary to me as a child. Uh, and I saw, uh, what is it, um, Mulholland, uh, Mulholland Drive. The mm-hmm. scene in the diner where it's like broad daylight and there's that slow tracking scene around the back of the diner to the, uh, to the creepy guy behind the diner, that fucking traumatized me. That <laughs> I affected had the me. same experience. And isn't it crazy how you can watch it? If you watch it enough times, you're like, that's not even a scary costume. Why is yeah. it so scary? No, that I, guy is, a, is not even in that crazy of a costume. It doesn't look that weird. What is? Why does it get me? Right. No, I like I like pulled the clip on YouTube and just watched it again and again to try to solve why it fucked me up more than any like jump scare or horror movie monster. And I still don't really know. I feel like it's got to have something to do with the context of the larger movie, like the mm-hmm. vibe that's been set up up to that point. Because if you watch it out of context on YouTube, I had that exact same experience. I'm like, yeah. 
that ain't that scary. Yeah. What was my problem? Yeah. <laughs> but in the theater, seeing Mulholland Drive for the first time, oh, that leveled me. Yeah. Um, all right. So Eraserhead, I think, and the tricky part for me was always when his, the, tie, the titular scene, essentially, like when his head turns into a, sorry, why is someone FaceTiming me? Someone I don't know is FaceTiming me. That's I never thought, happened in my life. I thought you were setting us up to finish it when his head turns into uh You know, you know. Eraser. No, when his head is... Okay, baby, yeah. chilling, chilling, um, minding my business. Sorry. The dream sequence when his head pops off and is turned into an eraser at the eraser mm-hmm. factory. And then a thing that I saw on Wikipedia that I don't even know if it's true or apocryphal, but I choose to believe it's true for this okay. theory, is that at the end in the famous shot that's usually the shot that's on like the box art for Eraserhead of yeah, Jack Nance looking like, concerned. The stuff kind of swirling around him. And the stuff behind him. That's supposedly eraser shavings? I think that it Wikipedia. is. That you think was, that's accurate? Watching it last night, that was my interpretation because that shot is uh, like echoing the visual of the eraser shavings in the earlier eraser scene. Like it looks right. aesthetically like identical. Yeah. So as usual with abstract stuff i feel like i wasn't being dumb enough i wasn't thinking primally (laughs) enough and this time i just thought like at a root level what are these symbols and so like sperm to me that's the symbol of i mean it is from a male perspective the movie so i'd say Mm -hmm. it's a symbol for uh you know uh generation future like ambitions the Mm -hmm. potential for things to grow and start and what is an eraser well disappearing not existing being forgotten Mm -hmm. and when i looked at it through that lens that this is literally just a horror movie about the most horrifying fact that can never be overcome which is that we will all one day no longer exist and be forgotten and everything that we ever did will be completely irrelevant and have been irrelevant for billions of years that's crazy to think about and it does scare me and i turned I, cold and wet as soon as yeah, right and uh it's I do just wish you're that this dead was a for video s- medium we both you're- did a like far away look at the same time of like oh god that's why it's truly scary to me the scariest thing to me is how much longer i'll be dead than how long i'm alive and uh eraser head is a like i think is about like why do we have children mm-hmm. to pretend that the cycle won't end. And yet children are the thing that prove that we have to die to make room for them to have their thing happen. So it's like, uh, and then the guy pulling the levers, I thought brought it to the cosmic scale where it's like this realization that even the earth itself will, you know, the sun will expand and swallow the earth. And so it's this confrontation between uh, moments of, feeling like life is vital enough uh, that things matter and it's worth doing things like uh, marrying a woman because you impregnated her things like that like being a good factory worker etc mm-hmm. versus actual pits of existential despair that some of us sometimes fall into where you're like everything's gonna end what the fuck is the point of anything if it's not eternal and i think you see Eraserhead oscillate between like trying failing, trying, failing, falling into despair, being tempted by another life, like with the woman across the hall, Um, but ultimately realizing you only get one life. You only get like the path you're dealt, um, the child like looming bigger and bigger in importance. And he ultimately embraces 
the woman from the radiator whose only role has been to crush sperm. So <laughs> I think for me, what I got out of it last night on this reading was that that is media, that is film, because she's dancing and singing on a stage and uh, evokes like 50s Hollywood to me. Yeah, um, same. Her face is deformed because Hollywood is toxic as hell. Uh, and she's <laughs> crushing sperm because I think it's an acceptance. It's a nihilist acceptance of the idea that, well, nothing matters, but I choose filmmaking, even though in the grand scheme of things, that also doesn't matter, but I just do it. Yeah. And that's something. <laughs> no, and I, I think that's pretty spot on to like my read as well they're like not that i had hit on all of that but like as you were saying it i'm like yes absolutely that's what that makes me feel like that was that feeling that i couldn't put words to and uh, the the woman in the radiator even in like a, a very like literal sense she has a little musical number that's like everything's fine in heaven <laughs> and yeah representing this uh sort of acceptance but also uh, not like thrashing against this existential despair but choosing to kind of invest yourself into art or media or yeah hollywood you're a filmmaker which you know obviously the person telling the story is it's like hey this is this is my escape this is my thing that you know crushes these thoughts of the future because i'm i'm creating some kind of legacy even if i know that ultimately it's as meaningless as anything else it's my way of putting something in there that will continue after i'm gone can you also yeah, the a fair Black Dahlia murder next? <laughs> I haven't seen that. Oh no, just meant the actual murder because I feel like. Oh, I do know about the murder. Your combined murders can figure it out. So I'm, can can you get on that after after? Yeah, this I have thumbtacks and string and, okay. and a creepy old Polaroid camera. Yeah, <laughs> we can Charlie meme after this if yeah. we need. Let's convene. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh. You and a fair number of people in the world confront that fear with uh, literal belief in heaven. So I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. That yeah. she's like, everything's great in heaven. You know, that's a platitude that I think a lot of us use to comfort ourselves. Or it's literally true and I'm going to burn in hell for not believing it. <laughs> One or the other. No, and I, I think that using that as the the thing that you tell yourself to make it okay. You know, there, there's heaven. There's something else beyond this life, whether it's a literal... Uh, theological heaven or yeah creating art that someone will take something from after you've died or having a child that you know carries on some figurative legacy like it's that's you know the the heaven that goes on in the afterlife yeah but only for like so long drive too because i actually don't get that one and even though i said that's fine no it annoys me (laughs) i want to get it (laughs) but i don't think there is i don't know if mulholland drive has a map in that way I haven't figured it out either because, like, I do relate to you on the end of, like, I I am annoyed and frustrated by movies that make me feel things when there's no, like, math to justify my feelings uh, mm-hmm. to where I find myself, like, scared or moved. But I'm like, I don't know why. And because I don't know the math, I'm angry at it. But I don't have, like, the same discipline to, like, go back and dissect it and figure out why it made me feel that thing. Instead, I just, like, stay mad until I presumably die. Uh, so, like... Your legacy is erased. My legacy is erased and i'm just dying mad uh yet i do love mahalan drive despite that so i feel like that would be a really fun one to dive into as well yeah is that a horror movie 
Yeah. I count Mulholland Drive okay. as a horror movie, almost more so the for me personally. The dancing little senior citizens are pretty terrifying. <laughs> and the guy, and it has a spooky monster. It does. The guy behind yeah. the restaurant, so that counts, yeah. I mean, and there's a reason why, like, on the most base, like, dodoy this is horror level that you go into like any horror based store whether it be etsy or like in real life and there's always some kind of like twin peaks merch in there because the same Mm. fan that like likes generally what is obviously horror also likes all things david lynch because it meets the same criteria yeah it's like harder to justify for some people because there's not like a werewolf or a guy with a knife but it makes you feel the same thing yeah i'm still uneasy and i'm still uncomfortable yeah now yeah, i bet he's a weird what if he was like your uncle what a show <laughs> i think about this constantly because whenever i watch his interviews especially and like his refusal to have anything make sense because he like is very much like it's going to be the way i want to and it's not even from like a sort of uh like what you see with a lot of filmmakers where it's like a control thing but it's just this is how i saw it happening and this is how it's going to happen and it's going to take exactly as long as it needs to i cannot imagine being related to that yeah and you're like but why david why that I don't know. <laughs> like, just do it. <laughs> or I w- I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> and it's important I love that I don't. The DVD of Mulholland Drive on the inside flap came with a thing called, like, spoilers, don't open unless you want to know the secret. And it was like 10 clues from Dave- written by David Lynch on unlocking what Mulholland Drive means. And it was stuff like, Pay attention to the red lampshade. And it was all intentionally bullshit. Like, it's, it makes it more confusing. It was just to fuck with people. Or it's how dare you for even trying to find an Don't easy Don't try way. to decode it. There's nothing. Yeah. Or it doesn't work that way. It works on a different level. Because and Drive doesn't do the primal... I mean, it is prime. It feels primal, but like, I don't know what a really pale cowboy represents on a primal <laughs> level. I can't decode it in that way. Yeah. And it's earnest in a way to where Elijah and I were talking about this when we were watching Eraserhead. It's why a lot of his imitators come off as more like cheesy and pretentious than like his earnest need to put that in uh, to where somebody else doesn't really know why they're doing it. They just know it feels Lynchian as opposed to David Lynch, who's like, no, it needs to be there. Yeah, yeah, it it lacks the the confidence. And actually, like speaking of like uh, like imitators of of Lynch, I realized uh, because I hadn't gone back to Eraserhead in a really long time until we watched it for this. Thank you for that. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for uh, putting that back into my uh, peripheral because yeah, I had I had watched it years ago and was like, yeah, yeah, no, that was great. I get it. Love it. Don't know if I need to revisit it. I often. Uh, as the the martial arts side of this podcast, I often lack the patience for things with art house pacing. I have to be in a really specific headspace. I'm like, why isn't anyone doing a flip? Uh, so I, I like loved it, did not revisit it for a long time. But I realized I, I had this opinion of it uh, that I that I have with Twin Peaks, which is that I've seen so much media that was influenced and inspired by Twin Peaks that I like also really love things that I think took the right stuff from it and was effective. Uh, that like over the years when I revisit Twin Peaks, it feels a little diluted from you know the historical context of when this was a new thing and it was like pioneering all of these tropes that we would later see. 
so I, I feel like when I when I revisit the original Twin Peaks series, I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, no, like it's fun, it's cool, but it doesn't quite hit me the same way. Eraserhead still does. Eraserhead still feels unique and like I'm watching it for for the first time and I wasn't expecting that. Like I, I saw it and was like, oh, this still gets me. Like this still doesn't quite feel like anything else, even though things have obviously tried to do Eraserhead, you know? Yeah, 1977. So right around Star Wars <laughs> times, <laughs> Eraserhead is coming out. I just like, that is also impressive to me. And can we mention that the cast is incredible in Eraserhead? Yes. Every I, single person. I, the whole time I kept asking, like, what direction are they being given right now? Because there's so many I mean. layers. How'd they interpret? What did he say to them that they did this? Yes. How do you how do even you translate that? to them how what you're supposed to do? Yeah. I'm imagining then him smile and freeze. Then be sad, but say the happy line. Then be happy, <laughs> but say the sad line. Then go quiet and just be quiet and look straight. It's like imagining him walking up to each actor and just whispering something cryptic into their ears. And they're like, I know what I must do. Yeah. That's what I felt the most during the um, carving the chicken scene when the mother does like that weird moan into sobbing. And I don't really know like where she's going in any direction. So like when she starts sobbing, it is shocking because it feels like both like sexual but stupid all at once her entire performance at that table i to this day the thing that i'm gonna like charlie meme red string for the rest of my life is what the fuck was her direction now, yeah see, and then the the argument that it is also a slapstick comedy the comedic sensibilities of the film feel so intentional because after she runs away from the table and it's this really shocking upsetting moment uh bill i think his name is the the patriarch of the family so something like, oh, she'll be all right. She just needs a minute. Like, this happens all the time. And it's this mm-hmm. very flippant dismissal of like, eh, she's fine. And like, that just breaks me every time. It's such a like tension and then release of. Oh, you laugh you know, at that. I see. So I also get made uncomfortable by, I think a really successful horror tactic is to make people act against logic like i he has the opposite emotion that anyone would have in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, I understand that there's something about that, the rapid contrast, that is also funny. So I totally see how it could make you laugh, but I don't know, my my horror goggles were sustained throughout the entire okay. sequence. Okay. But that's interesting, it's really interesting to hear that you laughed in the middle. Because uh, like, it's happened to me the other way too, when my girlfriend and I saw uh, There Will Be Blood in theaters, at the mm-hmm. end when he finally breaks and bashes the guy's skull in we thought it was hilarious and everyone was upset that we were like ruining the climax for them of an amazing movie but we just thought it was so darkly funny well i think it's because i'm done (laughs) i'm finished like making you laugh and scaring the shit out of you follow the same math like they're the the same same formula yeah so Oftentimes, mm-hmm. like, that's why people do laugh in a horror movie or laugh when they're scared, because it's just a lot of, like, it's that I'm not touching you, and now I am, that either gets a scream or laughter because a guy's head's getting bashed in. Right. It's rising tension and then uh, payoff, catharsis, punchline. Yeah. Horror Wait. comedy, one of the better genres, I think, for that reason. 
same because it's just a perfect dance it just and works it just what works I, it's what i consider a racer head to be it's a horror comedy the part where he takes the baby's temperature checks it and it's like i guess it's fine and then like really jarring smash cut to the baby looking horrifying is a hilarious mm-hmm. moment it's like an intrinsically funny visual to me <laughs> the baby now screaming and like in the instant that he's turned his back it's now covered in like weeping sores and it feels so much like yep this is fatherhood like he takes the temperature he's like i guess everything's fine turns around everything's on fire (laughs) yeah there's a cut scene where the baby turns to camera and says it's a living (laughs) (laughs) should have kept it should have kept it in that's why i prefer the director's cut in which all of the whistles are also pterodactyls Um, Do you guys know about Lynch's, like, the stuff he did before Razorhead? No. Oh, well, I saw one well, like short, when he was which was the grandmother. The one I'm aware of was a statue of a man vomiting that had projected upon it footage of eight different people really vomiting, and it was called <laughs> Nine People Vomiting, <laughs> something like that. See, that I didn't know of and that I would love to see because I saw a short he did called The Grandmother about a child who keeps wetting the bed so he grows his own grandmother. Um, Don't know how that A to B happens. Uh, Mm -hmm. Surprise, The Grandmother is uh, similar to like a lot of the iconography in Eraserhead, like springs from a pile of dirt on the dresser um, and is horrifying. And then the end. And I really love it because it's 30 minutes long. So it's, oh, look, another high pitched scream in the background. Um, So it's just like distilled David Lynch mania. That sounds great. I'm going to check that out immediately when we stop recording. It was on the Criterion streaming channel before that died with many other interesting niche streaming networks. Speaking of things in the Criterion collection. Oh. Michael, what did you think of uh, our pick from martial arts film to create a double feature with a razor head? You guys, this movie kicked ass. (laughs) This movie is an electric, like someone just slammed an electric guitar into a film strip over and over. Uh, This is totally, I know the Lone Wolf and Cub manga Mm -hmm. or manga, whatever I'm supposed to say. Uh, And yet never have seen the movies, am aware of their existence, always meant to see them. This is the first one I've seen. And the thing that surprised me that I didn't know I was in for is to me it felt like, it's like total kick-ass wish fulfillment. It felt like a James Bond that I can get behind because I'm not a huge fan of James Bond. Yeah, I find them like tedious exercises and I always envy the people who love James Bond because it seems like they get so much joy out of his stupid gallivanting around <laughs> and like to comparing the different James Bonds and all this shit. And I could totally do that with Lone Wolf and Cub. I just love it. Yes. I love how schlubby he is. <laughs> I the, I love that the blood is as red as the record button on my recorder. Like the blood is just paintball paint. Like they drained paintballs. It's it's phenomenal. I really I, enjoyed it. I really love that. Like people. Have oh, and it has nothing to do with a racer head. You're crazy. <laughs> Sorry, Elijah went to go close the door really quick because our neighbors decided <laughs> now was the time to make a smoothie. But uh, Elijah, Mike, just let it, you know that it has. He loved the movie. It has nothing to do with a racer head. Oh no. Okay, I I strongly disagree. Uh, on the most. I'm sure you'll convince <laughs> me. I just want to hear it. <laughs> no, on the on the most straightforward level, they're both films about fatherhood. 
they're both about essentially a single father raising a child that they were sort of unprepared for uh, in somewhat harsh environments. Uh, I think that uh, Vanessa actually pointed out if you just like compare the opening scene, this like almost cold open of both films, they're both just these very like surreal, quiet moments with some bodily fluids <laughs> that just like <laughs> I, I feel like you can almost layer those two scenes on top of each other and uh, that would be a thing that you would have done. <laughs> no, but they're they're both films about fatherhood. They're both movies about uh, a character who I, actually your analysis of Eraserhead further cemented in my mind that this was a great double feature because they're both films about characters who are kind of like thrashing internally against a, a structure that they've been placed into uh, and alternating sort of resignation and then existential dread of fighting against it because there's that scene where they are they've kidnapped his son they're holding the son over the well and they're like we're we're gonna drop him and he's he's pretty undisturbed he you know he's like well you know if if you want to kill him you're gonna kill him and they they say oh you, you I don't believe care? he says like. I walk the path of the demon's way and yes. must accept the price or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty he's, dope. Yeah, it's, it's such a great, it's such a great philosophy. Like you know, I've killed like a hundred people. If my son dies, that would make sense. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> me and my son, we both have chosen the path of like the demon's life in hell. Like we're both yeah. in a living hell with this very like you know devil may care attitude of like, well, whatever happens, happens. We're we're no longer human. We've we've transcended or possibly descended you're stuck into this. in here with me yeah. <laughs> exactly and but then they call him out they're like if that's true then why did you come running out here like when you saw that he was gone why didn't you just accept it if you just have this devil may care come what may attitude and he's like well you know only a fool would just let things happen and so there's this kind of like internal uh conflict with him that you know they they i think rightfully point out where he's like oh i don't give a shit about him i don't give a shit about anything i'm a demon nothing matters like existential ennui like i i have no legacy and the the, the villains when they are hatching the plan to kidnap the kid they incorrectly believe that his son is more valuable to him than he is because they're like oh he wants to rebuild his school of swordsmanship like he needs his son to be a successor to you know this this martial arts uh, form that he carries on to like rebuild his uh, family of you know noble samurai and then they get the kid and he's like yeah I don't give a shit we're devils we're not even human nothing that happens to us matters uh, but then yeah they, they call him out on it and he's like well no I'm still gonna fight to try to save my son and obviously he does care about him so it, it has a very it, thematically similar uh, kind of ebb and flow to Eraserhead where it's like you know him eventually killing the child but being like yeah no like i don't like i don't care about this kid nothing matters my legacy will be erased and you know he he wants to uh you know he, he flirts with uh this alternate life with the woman across the hall that he can't actually have and he you know sees the woman in the radiator as like you know this this escapism and then he comes back to like no i i have to take care of my son like i, I have to be a good father and just that kind of uh, be, being in a position of fatherhood that you didn't really ask for, having this fear about the future, but realizing there's kind of only so much you can do and choosing to create this new identity for yourself. That's like, no, no, I don't I don't care about that. Like, I don't I don't care about the future or my legacy. 
I care about now and the present and what I can do, you know, with the tools available to me in this moment. Uh, they're also both deeply surreal and very quiet films. <laughs> this is a good <laughs> podcast, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. I'm completely convinced. And I should have taken it back anyway, because uh, I don't know if we've called it out for uh, uh, Wolf and Cub, but yeah, the sound design is almost the same. The sound well. design is almost the same. There's so many like quiet moments where it just kind of focuses on like the crunching of flesh or just like and bizarre non-diegetic. Yeah, like that yeah. sound wouldn't be that close to my ear, and I would hear wind. Why is there no wind? <laughs> they overlook some stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there. Yeah, there are moments that are like almost silent when they're hacking someone to pieces. And then moments that yeah. are much louder and weirder than they should have been. And then yet the moment where he slashes vertically and the guy's head pops open, there's the sound of someone like sticking their thumb in their mouth and going. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you caught that. But then when he slashes the guy in half, there's no sound of, of like a swing or anything. Or the what group does of that women mean? just like cutting off slices of that guy until he's all torso. And it's fully silent. It's, it's totally a silent, silent Which like props to that ninja for having the discipline to not make a sound while he's not dismembered. <laughs> he's yeah. just like, uh, I'm, st I'm still going to get out of this. <laughs> I think the moment, like, sound design, color, and uh, just how, how surreal it felt that felt the most Lynchian to me um, was the, like, song coming out of that guy's neck when the razor-thin slice was made, and he himself, like, everything stops, and it becomes this monologue of this dying man who's like, I've always wanted to create such a sound, such a whistle, such a song to be played from a razor-thin slice, but who knew that the day I would find hear that song it would be coming from my own neck and then god blush geyser of blood yeah that's, that's... A guy, i wrote geyser of whistling neck blood <laughs> <laughs> like a fire hose you can see uh where some kill bill stuff came from for sure oh, yes definitely. well actually uh in kill bill the uh the movie that she's watching uh i haven't seen kill bill in forever but at one point i think in the second one she's like uh, her daughter is watching a movie with her. Maybe it's at the end of the film. And there's the narrator that's like, my father was the executioner to the Shogun. That was actually the American localization of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies, uh, mm. which, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, Shogun Executioner <coughs> or Shogun. I think it's Shogun Executioner is the title. Um, I, it oh, could it's not be Baby Card at something? No, no. It's, uh, yeah, they took the first two movies and cut them together in uh it's it's basically like the cool parts of the first film and then like most of the second movie and uh oh for the westernized release yeah yeah it's gotcha. oh shogun assassin sorry i had to i had to double check it's shogun mm -hmm. assassin but it was uh yeah they cut out most of the first film and pretty much just have like the fights and kills from the first film and then like all of the action from the second film so it's actually a pretty dope edit that's <laughs> interesting because i was gonna say the edit feels like a fast and furious movie where they're like we don't have time for this bullshit kill someone else cut to bad guys powering up better kill someone <laughs> like it's just all killer no filler so it makes sense yeah. that it's two movies combined no exactly 
And so, yeah, that actually is, like, referenced directly in Kill Bill, uh, among, like, a lot of other martial arts influences. Since we started this podcast, because I've had not a ton of, like, martial arts movie background other than, like, Jackie Chan and Lone Wolf and Cub. Those were, like, the two things that I, like, watched the most before we started doing this. Stephen Chow at all? A little bit. A little bit yeah. of uh, a little bit of Chow, but like I did not realize. Oh, and some Bruce Lee, but I didn't realize how many martial arts movies truly went into the amalgamation of the first two Kill Bills. Uh, like the episode we did before this, we watched Master of the Flying Guillotine, and I was like, "That weapon is Gogo's weapon. That's Gogo's. That's entirely the ball with the little razor blades around it. That's just Gogo's weapon." Or like uh, a lot of the different Shaw Brothers movies that we've been watching for this. There are so many direct whether it be like weapon remove name anything that I saw popping up in Kill Bill where I was like this almost feels like one of those paintings where it's like everything of someone's work painted into something and you have to figure it out and that's what both Kill Bills are I I would actually say that the more martial arts films uh, you watch like the more joyless Kill Bill becomes (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've I've never been a huge fan because uh, it is so heavily dependent on uh, like reference and homage, and they're like the the scenes and characters <laughs> and influences that he takes are so direct. And like if if you're familiar with all those films, they uh, to me at least feel uh, both like like very derivative, but also slightly lesser in each instance than the original film. So it's like he took all of these great moments from great films and made like a slightly worse version of all of them. It's, <laughs> Is my feeling. <laughs> Come at me, nerds. Okay. Uh, I'm so happy I sat down and watched these specific two movies together because I feel like it was almost like putting salt in cookie dough where it just kind mm-hmm. of turned up both where they for me seeing this as a double feature and these are two movies that's been a really long time since I've seen either I think it works as a pairing not just because of like the obvious thing which is like this is like a fatherhood double feature but um with double features I don't always want just a perfect match sometimes I want them to bring each other out I want them to uh highlight and contrast certain things that maybe I would have like missed on a singular watching and having the two of them back to back back to back just made them both individually more bizarre. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. No, it really Uh, becomes three hours of surrealism, which I enjoy. A good trick like that, that I always have to bring up when someone mentions contrast Put peanut butter on your hot dogs, people. I love peanut butter on hot dogs. Okay, great. It's not because they combine. It's because they both taste more like themselves because they're so different. It's great. (laughs) I've done done peanut butter on a burger. And it's I know wonderful. everyone's I've never done, done that on a hot dog. This is Jump some next level shit, steak, my friend. Yeah. It's incredible. It makes the hot dog more hot doggy, and it makes the peanut butter mm-hmm. more peanut y. Just is like that the snack, an eraser the head. snack pairing of this double of this, feature. This, this, is I peanut would say butter so. and hot dog. I think Put it might peanut be. butter on a hot dog and watch Eraserhead and Lone Wolf and Cub Baby Card at River Sticks. That's <laughs> the that's the dictum. Love Man, it. oh, and well. I don't mean to tie it all to James Bond because I know we're doing a thing here, but the gadgets too. I never expected him to have gadgets in the cart. <laughs> yes, the cart, like having these little surprise daggers. The the moment that the the sun everything activates is a one, knife. 
It's yeah. so good. When he just casually, like, hits a switch to murder someone, it's my favorite thing. This, this baby just soundlessly cut your feet off, motherfucker. <laughs> what are you going to do about that? Nothing. There's also something about, like, that kid where he's just so stoic and, like, undisturbed by everything, but also such a cute child. Just this little, like, round-faced, like, It's one of the kid. cutest kids I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I, I love it because he's so perfectly, like, he's not a creepy kid. You know, he's not, like, a horror movie scary kid that murders mm-hmm. you. He murders people without emotion, but is also, like, aww. Yeah, he's cute the whole time. Uh, he does really want to get that hair off that lady's titty. Did you notice that? <laughs> Slapping. <laughs> he's totally breaking character that's totally the kid himself being like why is this hair here get out of here <laughs> no, that feels very much like they just couldn't get the actor yeah. to stop doing oh. it also in keeping with james bond totally unnecessary misogyny like he could have told <laughs> yeah. that lady what he was doing he's like i'm gonna kind of rape you why i'm just getting you warm i'm just getting just you like, warm okay. it's like you could have said that at any point a hundred percent the whole time i was watching it and like hadn't seen any like lone wolf and cub for so long that i was like all right this feels on par with the like this era of filmmaking and it's like oh he's keeping your warm and it's like i Oh, you thought I, you, I knew that something was going to happen, but I'm like, is that part of his thing? He's like James Bond, but he rapes the women because I don't I'm not into that. I, I almost feel like the intention with that is to try to be like, haha, he's so heroic because she has he that didn't. moment. Yeah, she yeah. has that moment of like, oh, I was thinking about you completely wrong. Like, I, I totally misjudged you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it doesn't make him heroic for not choosing to rape her like yeah, that's okay. not it what makes easy. him heroic is pole vaulting over a fireboat <laughs> <laughs> i i loved her character a lot too like i wish i could have gotten a little bit more of her and like Same. what her deal was because in that moment where they're all like sitting together and they're like using their body heat to keep warm and not freeze to death i'm like man what a bloodthirsty family they would be oh it's true oh man yeah if she joined and became yeah. a third of a trio that would be awesome Which would have would have been amazing i also her character i felt like uh it, it, it's more like aesthetic and surface level, but there are a few shots of her that feel identical to shots of like the woman across the hall in a razor head where they're just these weird, like close shots of her face on like a blank background where she's just kind of staring into camera. There's uh, definitely something about the quality of the film stock and some of the shots that is very eraser heady. The one that got me is when they were just establishing that everyone here is dead, it's just like abstract, very shady shots of parts of dead bodies. And the only sound is like the creaky rocking of a boat for a long time. It's really yes. cool. It's really good. Also, you uh, you mentioned that the uh, this, you know, sort of like James Bond analog, but he's like a little bit schlubby. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of my favorite like behind the scenes stories of Lone Wolf and Cub is the way that dude got that role. He was, uh, he was, like, not in the running at all. Like, there was uh, a much more famous, like, Chambara actor who was a much more, like... Sure. Uh, which I, I think Why would actually, he be in the running? Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, I think it, uh, it was... Uh, I, and I might be misremembering, but I think it was actually his brother that was, like, the dude that they wanted because he was, like, a more famous and, like, you know, kind of, like, stereotypical lead that was just, like, handsome samurai guy. 
uh, and he he couldn't do it. But this guy was like, no, no, like you should pick me. I'm perfect for the role. I love these comics. I embody this spirit. Everyone's like, no, absolutely not. Like you have no experience. You're nobody, and you don't look like a samurai hero. The way he convinced them is that he showed up, not at like the director or producer's house. He showed up at the house of the dude who wrote the original comic, like knocks on his door, like you know, first thing in the morning. He's out there fucking six a.m. And he does not, like, announce this. He, d- he didn't schedule a meeting. This dude doesn't even know who he is. The comic author opens the door and sees this man standing in front of his door with a katana who's like, you should consider me for the role, and then starts whipping the katana around and doing, like, angry somersaults in his front lawn. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> I'm the man for the job, <laughs> which is the most, like, unhinged thing. And the author of the comic was like, I'm convinced. <laughs> like, this man is perfect. <laughs> this That's man the energy is you want. And that I, works for this part. Right. Yeah. And every time I see him, like doing grumpy swordsmanship i just imagine that dude at 6 a.m on my front lawn just pick like, me i'm gonna do a fucking somersault until you choose me are you watching watch <laughs> yeah it's so good all right so this is the question for everyone to figure out if it worked would you see this double feature and would you see this double feature eating a hot dog slathered in peanut butter like a maniac alone in your living room I absolutely would, and I would chase it with John Wick because they both end up in the desert inexplicably starring something you just can't kill. Elijah just air-punched for that. That's that's a perfect triple feature. I also actually wanted to... Uh, I, I cannot... I have no way of confirming this, but I feel like of any of the double features that we've picked for this, this feels the closest to something that might have actually been programmed. Like, this feels like given the time that both films were released and probably it would have been like Shogun Assassin, but like the time that they would have been released, I feel like you could have seen these at a drive-in together at some point, you know, like I, I think that could have been a double feature that actually existed where it's just all, two... all you'd have to bring is your own peanut butter and you're yeah. good to go. Yeah. yeah. Cause they never, they never have them other than in the peanut butter cup, which I find gross for some reason. Do you guys remember that peanut butter cup commercial where the girl is in a movie theater with a jar of peanut butter and a guy on like the upper level, like the mezzanine or whatever, he drops his chocolate bar and it lands in the peanut butter jar and they yes. both realize they want peanut butter cups. They go to the concessions and it's implied that maybe they like flirt a little bit once they're out there. They're like, Oh, great taste. It tastes Who great together. takes a jar of peanut butter to the theater. Yes. What was she going to do with it? This was my point. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. No, no, no. no. You found the natural <laughs> thing. Yeah. Because she sneaked in a jar of peanut butter of all the things to like sneak into a movie theater with you. Just a jar of peanut butter. She had no uh, second thing that she was putting into it. She was like Did surprised she... when there was chocolate. Was if I see, I'd have to pull up the commercial, but I'm imagining it with her holding the jar with both hands, excited to eat the peanut butter. Like no spoon or anything. I was yeah, just no, wondering I what she was going to do. I looked it yeah. up. She has no spoon. She has which no means spoon. What this, was she planning with the peanut butter? This deranged woman went to the movies <laughs> to stick her fist into a jar of peanut butter, which we can assume is maybe smooth. She uh, was just going to chew on her smooth peanut buttery fist all through Schindler's List. <laughs> that was her plan for the day. Yeah, so that that woman is in the the target demographic for this double feature. <laughs> yeah, she's who we're aiming for. But yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think they pair very well together. Thank and you. in that order, because 
you don't want to do lone wolf and cub and then get brought down to a razor heads level yeah Yeah. you want to end on the crescendo Mm -hmm. but uh speaking of ending on a crescendo thank you so much for being here you are an amazing first guest and i just love talking about movies with you i missed you so much i know i miss you any excuse to chat always up for it oh i miss you too thanks a lot (laughs) thanks ja we're close so i call him ja yeah, Love you it. grab it by the tail end. Uh, where can the uh, people find you? Oh, well, where they can find the stuff I want them to find is at patreon.com slash small beans. You can also find me over at IGN uh, randomly reporting on like light entertainment news. It pays the bills. I'm less interested <laughs> in it. But my my very uh, super fulfilling artistic output is at patreon.com slash small beans. Small beans. Uh, I love small beans. I'm an absolute beanhead. I love everything you guys do. Uh, it's such a blast. And I, I I, check it more than I think like most Patreons just because it's always something new and exciting and it's always covering something that I really love. So I'm a big beanhead. Please check out small beans. Oh, that means so, that means the world. We, uh, yeah, we, we do a lot of shit and we try to post everything we do. Our lives are yours. <laughs> yeah, truly the like, the complete variety and the types of media that you do is something that even like larger companies can't figure out when it comes to just different kinds of multimedia output. Hell yeah. I'll Hell take yeah. That. Uh, and you can find us at kickscreampod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and as always, you can find me under at Ness Gritton on all forms of social media and the very, very poorly updated VanessaGritton.com. Uh, Elijah, where can the people find you? Uh, I will be at the Underground Kumite this weekend, <laughs> so if you're there, keep an eye out for me. Uh, and on Twitter, I am at Elijah underscore pizza. You can also find me enjoying the content of Small Beans at patreon.com slash smallbeans. And uh, for our next episode that we have coming up, we have another very fun guest for you. It's Kelly Nugent, and we are doing Mortuary paired with... I don't know what we're going to pair with a movie with baby Bill Paxton uh, in it that involves witch- witchcraft, a lot of witchcraft. There are a lot of seances that don't really go anywhere, but we'll get into that next episode. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. Support your local uh, drive-in and your local indie theater by buying gift cards or merch where you can so we can keep them alive before this pandemic takes them all with us. Uh, And uh, thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for watching. Bye. Bye. Bye.